I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We're starting a new chapter this week. And we're going to be looking at the first 15 verses, a very well-known text. Perhaps in your Bible there's a heading that says Jesus feeds the 5,000 or the feeding of the 5,000. But I would like us to pay particular attention to the text. Often when we know the story is when we pay least attention. And that's when God will most surprise us with something that He has for us to learn. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. What are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask today that you would reach us through your word. Lord, your word is life. Your word is hope. Your word tells us of your grace and the work of the Son. And so we ask this morning that you would open our eyes that the word might come to us and be planted deep within our hearts so that we might bear much fruit, even as the parable that we heard earlier. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We have heard, or I have reminded us, over and over again, about John's purpose in writing this gospel. 
John said that he could not record all the signs that Jesus did because to do so would be to fill books that would overflow the world. But he said he wrote this gospel and told us these signs so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, we would have life in his name. And so John tells us about the signs that Jesus did for that end. So much so that the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John are often called the book of the signs. There are seven major signs or miracles that tell us about Jesus, who he is, what he has done, and what he will do for us. Today we come to the fourth of these signs. And it is an exceedingly significant one. It is, apart from the resurrection of our Lord, the only miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. There is a passage in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke and here in John showing us this sign of Jesus. This sign is important because it shows us our need. And it shows us that Jesus is a Savior who meets our need. And then also, it shows us how we are to follow Him. And so this morning, I would like us to look at three things from our text. First, John reveals to us the problem that is at hand. The problem of the people. And then secondly, he shows us Jesus' solution to that problem. And then finally... He gives us our lessons that we can take from this. The problem, Jesus' solution, and our lessons. Well, let's begin then by looking at the very beginning of chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, chapter 6, you may notice, begins in the same way that chapter 5 began. This phrase, after this. It's the same two Greek words, the same two English words, and John is using it as a transition from one set of events to another. Some period of time has passed, John is telling us that, but he isn't indicating how long a period has passed. He just wants us to know that this is the next thing for us to pay attention to. Now we do know From the other gospel accounts, I've told you that this scene is found in all four of the gospels. From the other gospel accounts, we do know that much has happened between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 in this gospel. Jesus has been in what is often called the year of popularity of his ministry. That is, his ministry in Galilee and the surrounding area. It was a time in which Jesus taught and he healed the sick and he drew great crowds and people followed after him and they wanted to be with him. Hence, the year of popularity. Now, but other things have happened here as well. Jesus has sent the disciples out to preach and to heal the sick, to cast out demons in the towns and the villages. And they have been at work. And then there's one other major event that occurs between these two chapters. John the Baptist has been beheaded by Herod. So there's a lot in after this. 
This is another stage of Jesus' ministry. We've gone from one feast in chapter 5 to now the feast of the Passover in chapter 6. And much has happened, and this is important for us to know, because as a result of all that has gone on, all of the ministry, all of the work of the disciples, of the death of John the Baptist, Jesus takes his disciples out for a rest. Now, you can imagine that, can't you? Here at Christ Church, we have men's retreats. We have women's retreats. We even have youth retreats. Now, I don't know what it says that there's no need for children's retreats, but I'll leave that to you families. But adults, at least, need to have a time of rest and recuperation to recharge And that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus has become very popular. Crowds are following him, pressing in on him. And we know from Mark's account that Jesus says to the disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. And Mark adds, for many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. Now can you imagine that? You're so busy you don't even have a chance to eat? I think I've just described the life of every mother with young children around lunchtime. In which you make the meal, you get it together, you sit the kids down, you give them their food. And before you can get to your plate, somebody's knocked over a glass of juice. Or somebody doesn't like what's on their plate. Or someone's touching my food on my plate or something. And mom winds up standing in the kitchen trying to eat something. And you know how frustrating that can be. Imagine if this went on day after day after day and the the disciples had no opportunity to rest or to recharge or even to eat. So Jesus says what we need to do now is go to a desolate place and to get that rest. So they go across the Sea of Galilee. So they're on initially the western side of this lake called the Sea of Galilee, which is the more Jewish side of the lake, if I can put it that way. It's where Galilee and not far from there, Judea are. And they get in a boat and they go across the lake to the eastern side, to which is the more Gentile area of the the promised land. And they go there to get away from the crowds, from the people who know Jesus. They want to go somewhere where Jesus isn't as well known. He hasn't been ministering recently. And they head off for the city of Bethsaida. Now, that name should ring a bell for you because it's the hometown of Philip and of Andrew and of Peter. We met this town when we met these disciples at the end of chapter 1. And so they go to this town to get away from the crowd and the press. But there's a problem. The people will have none of it. John tells us that there was a large, that is a great crowd around them. And then Mark tells us that they saw Jesus get in the boat and they followed him. Now, now they didn't run on the water and follow after him in the boat. But what they did do was they had an idea of where he was going. That he was going to Bethsaida. And they ran around the north edge of the lake. And Mark tells us that they got there so swiftly that they beat Jesus there. Now, could you imagine that? Imagine that you're Bartholomew or Andrew or James. And you are plumb tuckered out. And you've been doing Jesus' work. You've been healing the sick. You've been casting out demons. You've been preaching the kingdom. 
And Jesus tells you, we're going to have some alone time, a break, in which we can refresh and I will encourage you. And you get in the boat and you go on this calm sea and then you come and you see land and you see, they're here. We can't get away from these people. They beat us here. How are we ever going to get any rest? Now, the people had followed Jesus probably without thinking about it at all. They just got up and ran and went. Now, John tells us that it was the Passover, so it's likely that this large crowd was not from the cities or the towns in the area. They were probably Passover pilgrims. You remember that during Passover, Jerusalem would swell with pilgrims from all over Israel. And so they probably didn't have homes to go to. They didn't have food packed. They just simply went. They're not exactly planning. They wouldn't make good campers. They show up there empty-handed, as it were. This is important for what we're about to see. So Jesus goes up on the mountain, John tells us, to talk to them. Now, this is important. You have to understand that this mountain here is probably not like a mountain you would think of. It's not Pikes Peak. It's not the Himalayas. It's probably more like a bump in our hill country. It's just a hill. But in Israel, that's a mountain. Because a lot of Israel is about as flat as Houston is. And so Jesus goes up on this mountain, on this hill, and he does this purposefully. You see, he now is not going to get away from the people. He knows the people are here. He knows they want to be with him. He knows they want to hear him, and so he goes up on a place where he will have natural projection where the large crowd can hear his voice. That's what Jesus does. And when he goes up there, he sees this large mass of humanity. 5,000 men. But likely a crowd of about fifteen to 20,000 because the gospel writers tell us there's 5,000 men not counting women and children. So it's very likely that there's between fifteen and 20,000 people here. Now just to give you an idea about that, that's more people than will fit in the Katy football stadium. Almost by two. It's about the size of a crowd at an average basketball arena. There are a lot of people here. And Jesus surveys them, but he sees immediately what their need is. John tells us that he had compassion on them because they were hungry. Now, Jesus could have dismissed them. That, after all, that's what the disciples wanted to do. We, we know from Mark and Matthew that the disciples said, Lord, you need to tell these people to go home. We can't handle them. We can't provide for them. Send them packing. Jesus could have looked at them and said, well, you're hungry, that's your problem. You should have brought something to eat. But he doesn't do that. Here we see Jesus' compassion even in the smallest of things. He sees they're hungry, and he wants to provide for them. It's not like they're going to starve, but they're needy. And so Jesus turns to Philip and asks him a question. Now, you may immediately wonder, why does he ask Philip this question? Why does he say to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Why not ask James or John 
Well, he asks Philip because, remember, this is Philip's hometown area. It's as if Jesus were here and he said to one of you, where's the closest H-E-B? We've got to get some food here. Where do we go to buy food? Now, the question he asks is so simple. But it seems crazy, doesn't it, in verse 5? Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? I mean, could you imagine that? If on Thanksgiving, you were getting ready to get the food prepared, and your spouse comes into the room and says, I just want you to know, you know, I ran into some folks and I invited them for Thanksgiving dinner. And you say, oh, okay. How many? It couldn't have been more than 13 or 14,000 people. So, who do you, which grocery store do you think is open that we could get some extra stuffing and maybe a couple of turkeys? Now, your immediate reaction would be, that's insane. Because there's no store that has turkeys for 13,000 people on Thanksgiving Day. That just doesn't happen. And even if they did, we don't have the money in our bank account to buy 13,000 turkeys. And, and that's kind of exactly Philip's reaction to Jesus. He doesn't even go with an answer to where they can get it. This is a desolate place. Remember, they've gone across the sea. Mark, Matthew, and Luke all tell us it's a desolate place. John later on tells us it's a place full of grass. Now, you know what that means. There's no buildings. There's no homes. There's no restaurants. It's an open field. You know, one of the ways in which I describe Katie to friends of mine who aren't from here, and it's growth, is I say Katie is a place where there's a war on grass. Everywhere you look, they are building something and putting concrete down. There's not a lot of grass in Katy. If you want to find grass, you've got to go to East Texas. Or you've got to go out somewhere where it's a rural area, then you'll find some grass. So they're out in the middle of nowhere. And Philip says, I'm not even going to go there, Jesus. We don't have any money to do that. He says, 200 denarii wouldn't be enough to get them a snack, let alone a, a meal. Do you see how the detail that Philip gives? It would not be enough to get each of them even a little, a morsel. Now, 200 denarii is hard for us to understand. So let me try to put it in terms we can understand. That's about eight months' wages, nine months' wages. Which if we were to assume, just roughly speaking, that an average middle-class salary would be, I like my numbers round, about $75,000. Jesus is telling Philip, just you know, dip into the piggy bank and come up with 50 grand for the meal. What? Can you imagine that? I mean, he says, we don't have that. That's well beyond our resources, Lord. There's no way we can do this. And even if we did that, it would just be a bit to eat. We couldn't even provide a proper meal. Then Andrew comes up. Now, you remember Andrew. Andrew was the one who brought Philip to Jesus back in chapter 1. And so they're friends. And so I think Andrew sees Philip kind of struggling here. He's probably scratching his head. Maybe even his voice is raised. He, he knows Jesus is asking Philip for something. He maybe hears what's going on, and he wants to help. So you can imagine Andrew's going out in the crowd, and he's saying, do you have a ham sandwich? No, 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 I, oh, we don't need ham. Okay, how about turkey? Anybody have a turkey sandwich? Anybody have some rice? Uh, maybe even some bread. What do you got? What do you got? And you can just imagine as he goes through, a little boy walks up to him with 
his lunch bucket. And in his lunch bucket, he has a Lunchable. And it's not any old Lunchable. It's a Lunchable that I don't think any of us would want to lunch on. Because you see, we see Andrew come up with this boy, and we read five barley loaves and two fish. And in our mind are five delicious loaves of bread about yay big. And two really huge trouts. And we are ready We can almost smell the fish fry. But that's not really what the text says. You see, barley bread was the worst, cheapest kind of bread that only poor people ate. And what's described here is not a big loaf. It's more like along the lines of an English muffin or a cracker because it's barley, not wheat. Okay? Any of you that have had to eat gluten-free food know what I'm talking about here. All right? And the fish are not big, healthy fish that you would fillet. They're pickled fish. One commentator describes it, I think, vividly and in a good way. It's like pickle relish, a fish that you put on the cracker muffin and eat. So it's like a fish relish sandwich that he could make. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know that there's any kids here that want parents to pack that for their lunch. So not only do we not have what we need, what we need is not even what we want. This is all designed so that you and I look at this and say, this is absolutely impossible. This is ridiculous. There is no way these people can be fed. These people are in a lot of trouble. They're going to go hungry. It's a significant problem. And it's obvious that there's no solution. Well, We might ask then, why did Jesus even ask Philip about the food? Surely Jesus could count the people as easily as Philip could. Jesus knew there was no money to buy all these people food. He knew there was no place to buy it. Even more, Jesus knew as he was teaching the people and as they were getting hungry that this was a problem. Even more than that, Jesus knew all of this would happen when he withdrew to a desolate place and they would follow him. None of this catches Jesus by surprise. So how does Jesus get himself in this predicament? You see, when we face problems, that's often what we wonder. Why did the Lord bring me to this place? Why did he allow this to happen to me? Didn't he know the problems that I would have here? Why did he allow this to happen? Doesn't he care for me? Well, John tells us specifically why Jesus did all of this and why he asked Philip. Jesus knew what he was going to do. That's what John tells us. He knew it wasn't impossible. But it's not because there was some kind of hidden solution. It's because of who Jesus is. You see, when we face a problem, we start by looking for the solution. Jesus is teaching us to start by looking for him. He is what we need. We don't need a solution to the problem. We need Jesus first and foremost. Now imagine the scene. They're out in the middle of nowhere. There's no way to buy food even if they could find it. Andrew helps in like the worst way possible. You can just imagine the look that Philip gives Andrew. When Andrew comes up with the five 
fish relish cracker sandwiches. Really? You're not helping. Go take the boy away, Andrew. You're not helping. And Jesus says, have the people sit down and get ready to eat. Really? That's what we're going to do? Yes, Jesus says. Have them sit down by 50s. Jesus is a good Presbyterian. He has them all sit orderly in groups by 50s to get ready to eat. Everything is decently in an order. Now, again, stop to think about the number here. Probably between 15 and 20,000 people. Enough to fill a basketball stadium. And then John tells us very simply that Jesus takes that food, that little bit of food that's not even really appetizing, and he gives thanks to God. What John says is so simple that we miss the colossal nature of this miracle. John just says he gave thanks and he distributed them to those who were seated. It sounds like passing the plates at Thanksgiving dinner. This is easy, right? But don't forget where we are. Don't forget everything that's happened. And I want you to see what Jesus does first and foremost. He gives thanks to God. He gives thanks to God for the barley crackers and fish relish that he's got that's insufficient for everyone. He starts by thanking God. He blesses God for the food. Now stop for a moment and think. Do you bless the Lord for all that you have? Even the things you have that you wish were better. Do you know that everything you have comes from the Lord? You see, when we have that perspective, it makes even the things that we're not so hot about, not so excited about, a need to give thanks to God for. Because but for the Lord, we wouldn't have even that. Be thankful. And then Jesus shows us his power. He gives thanks and he distributes to all who are sitting down, about 5,000 in number of the men. And... They took as much as they wanted. Now, you remember Philip said, if we had two-thirds of a year's wages, we couldn't buy a snack. And Jesus has just taken this little boy's Lunchable and turned it into as much as they could possibly want. Now, you know what that means. That means... That they left stuffed. That they didn't, there was no room for dessert when they were done eating. It's like after seconds or thirds or fourths at Thanksgiving meal, when you say, this is it, I'm never eating again. Right? You push away from the table. As much as they wanted, they ate their fill, John puts it in verse 12, very particularly. And then when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that, none, that nothing may be lost. Now, we don't know exactly what happened. We don't know if somehow Jesus put the food in baskets and the disciples went out and went and emptied the baskets and came back to Jesus and he refilled the baskets and they went back out again or whether they filled the baskets and as it was passed down a row of people, miraculously, one small piece of bread grew to five times the size and the fish mold. We don't know. 
Because John doesn't think that's important. Now think about that for a moment. That's, well, yeah. The, the two fish and the five loaves. Yeah, 20,000 people. Big deal. What John wants us to focus on is Jesus. Not the food. No human power was available. Only God could do this, and Jesus is God. He is the one who made the earth that brings forth the grain that produces the bread. He is the one who made the waters where the fish dwell. Nothing is impossible with Jesus. What matters is Jesus' will. Nothing stops Jesus' will. And Jesus' power is more than we can imagine. He not only feeds all of these people, he not only lets them eat to the fill, there's another detail here. There are leftover fragments that are gathered up, 12 baskets. I don't think it's a coincidence. 12 disciples, 12 baskets, each one has a basket. They're holding the evidence of overflowing grace. Now, mothers, this is the Bible verse you have been looking for. It's the Bible verse that authorizes leftovers. When your children say, we don't want that anymore, don't put that in the fridge, you say, Jesus gathered leftovers. We don't waste food. But do you see the point that Jesus is making here? It's not just that they were scraping by. It's not just that some people said, I, I could have some more, but I'm going to hold off. No, they all ate their full, and there's an overflowing amount left over, more than they started with. This is how Jesus works in your life. He not only solves the impossible, he gives you more than you need, more than you hope for. But there's another aspect to this sign. Jesus clearly shows his power and deity. But there are other details in this story that show us that Jesus also fulfills the promises of God. This is happening at the Passover. There are people who need food. There is a boy with barley bread. There are people sitting in groups. All of these details John gives us. Why? Because it would remind his listeners of God's work in the Old Testament. Let's start with the boy and the bread. You may have been wondering, like Philip probably was, what Andrew was doing. Why he would bother with this boy. Why do all of the Gospels record it? Why don't they just say there was barely enough food for one person? Why the detail here? Well, it brings us back to a story in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 4, starting at verse 42. I'd like to read it to you. A man came from Baal, Shalisha, bringing the man of God, that's Elisha the prophet, bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give it to the men that they may eat. But his servant, which in Hebrew is also the word for boy, said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So Elisha repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he said it before them. And they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Now, do you see the similarities here? Barley? The boy? The leftovers? 
But what about the differences? 20 loaves, not enough for 100. Yet five are enough for 5,000 men plus women and children. Now, who is it that did that first sign? It's Elisha the prophet, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. The man of God who was known for his signs and miracle working. Do you see here that Jesus is greater than him in every way possible? John wants us to see that. What about the Passover? Remember that nothing Jesus does is by coincidence. He's very purposeful in what he does. You remember when it was said he must go through Samaria. And he didn't have to. But he must go through Samaria because there was a woman there that he needed to speak to. So now at the Passover, that brings us back to the story of the Exodus. Where were the Israelites during the Exodus? They were in a desert place, weren't they? Where was their leader, Moses? Wasn't he up on the mountain? What was their immediate need? Wasn't it food? How were they organized? By groups, by tribes. And what was God ultimately doing? He was bringing them out from bondage so that they would worship him. But here, John tells us, one greater than Moses is present. He is the one who brings about the true exodus. Jesus himself does this miracle. Moses didn't do the miracle of the manna. God did. Jesus does this of his own power. Jesus is the one who speaks truth to them from the mountain. Jesus is the one who is bringing them out of bondage to sin and death so that they might worship God. Again, who is this Jesus? Now remember something else. Remember how chapter 5 ended? There's a reason why John just says after this and he skips. Because the very end of chapter 5 is, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. Because he wrote of me. Do you see John connecting that there? He wants his readers and us to know that Jesus is greater than any prophet, greater than any king, greater than any priest. He's not only God. He's the Savior we need. Well, thirdly, let's conclude with two brief lessons. This story not only tells us about Jesus, it gives us direction on how to follow Jesus. So we go back to the test of verse 6, Jesus testing Philip. Jesus did not need Philip to solve the problem. Obviously, we know that. But he wanted the disciples to see others' need and to act on it. He didn't want them to simply dismiss the hunger of this crowd. He wanted them to see that we are not to stand by while others are in need. We are to have the compassion that Jesus has for others. Now, this does not mean that we are to subordinate the gospel to helping the poor and the helpless. After all, Jesus spent the whole day bringing them teaching on the gospel of the kingdom. But it does mean that we are to help. And that's the history of the church. There would be no hospitals but for the church. There would be no universities but for the church. And when disaster strikes, who's there first? I'll tell you this, it's not the government. It's the church is already there first. While the government's trying to get organized, the church is already sending people out. 
Think about all of the natural disasters over the last decade and how much the church has provided water and meals and help. Think about your own experience here in 2017 with Harvey and how Christ Church helped hundreds of people affected by the flood. And we helped them, why? We didn't make them sign a contract that says, if we help you, you'll come and attend worship at our church. We didn't ask them to pay us back for that help. No, we helped them because we wanted to show them the compassion and love of Jesus. That's what it means to follow Jesus. You follow Jesus by actually following Jesus. By being like him. By imitating him. That's what John is showing us. Now, why the famous boy here with the Lunchable? Have you wondered that? Jesus could have created food out of nothing. But he chose to use what that boy and Andrew's help had brought. And it's a reminder to us that however little we have, we are to bring it to Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. He marvelously uses what little we have in a glorious way. I think too often we have the mentality that says, Jesus, you need to give me more resources, more skills, more abilities, more influence so I can help you. If you don't give me that, I can't help you, Jesus. When in reality what Jesus says is, whatever you have, bring it to me. And I will multiply it. And I will glorify it. And this relates to a second lesson that we have here. Jesus is enough. With Jesus, there is always more than you could hope for. You can never despair when you have Jesus. You don't have to calculate your ability. You don't have to calculate your resources. They don't have to be enough. Know that Jesus can multiply what you have and meet your needs. You do not need to be overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by your family needs or by your work or even by your own sin. You don't. You see, this story reminds us of who Jesus is and how important he is to us. There is a reason this story is so well known and that it's included in all of the Gospels. It reminds us that our need is great. Greater than we even realize. But we have to remember that Jesus is greater even than our greatest need. He is truly God. Sent to become man so that we would be rescued from sin, death, and despair. If you trust Jesus, you will never find him wanting. He will never fail you. Right after these events, Jesus asked Peter, Who do you say that I am? Peter's answer was, The Christ of God. And Jesus responded by telling the disciples to deny themselves and to take up their cross and follow me. Will you follow Jesus today? Is he your only hope? Do you believe that Jesus is enough? Believe in Jesus Christ today and be saved.
Let's pray.